Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, just over a week ago, King Charles was officially crowned King of Great Britain. At 73 years of age, he's the oldest person in the British monarchy to take the throne. He also spent the longest time as the immediate heir to the throne, and he had to wait uh, so many years. He had to wait, yeah, the longest of anyone. But for King Charles, that time has finally come. It's finally here. He is now king. You know, I think, I, I think we all know something of that feeling, not of becoming royalty, but that feeling of looking forward to something for a long time, or waiting for something to happen, that you have to wait, yeah, indefinitely. But then finally, at long last, that thing you waited for has come. Think of a child with his or her birthday. Often they talk to mom and dad, when is my birthday? Well, it's in 10 months, uh, but they have to wait. But then eventually it comes around. Or think of a special event you've been planning for a long time, maybe a wedding. Or think of someone's retirement after working so many years. You wait, and then finally... Finally, that day comes around. Well, we can have that sense also when it comes to eternal life. It's something God has promised us. It's something we look forward to. Something that lies ahead in the future. We don't know exactly the number of our days here on earth. And the time to get there might seem to drag on and on, especially if you are suffering in this life. But one day it will come. The things hoped for will arrive. And then we will be in eternal life and there will be no going back. The Apostle Paul speaks about that sort of thing in our text this morning. He talks about how we long for the things to come. He says we fix our eyes on them. We desire to have eternal life in full and be at home with the Lord. And not only do we long for those things to come, but because we can, as Christians, have confidence that one day they will come, it also gives us much courage as we go through this life and as we wait for them to come. So that brings us to the sermon theme, which this morning is as follows. The sure hope of eternal life means Christians can always be of good courage. We're going to look at three things in connection with that main theme. First of all, we'll look at the Christian's future glory, uh, the Christian's present groaning, and then the Christian's ongoing faith. So first of all, the Christian's uh, future glory. Now in Hebrews 11 verse 1, we get a beautiful definition of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this is the very faith we see displayed in this text before us this morning. The Apostle Paul says right at the beginning of our text, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Notice, first of all, the conviction. 
we believe, and so we speak. The confidence with which you speak corresponds to the certainty of your faith or how much you know something. When you don't know something, you can't speak about it confidently. Sometimes I have that in catechism class. I ask a student directly a question, and if they're unsure of the answer, they respond in sort of in the form of a question, as in, uh, is this the right answer, or is this what you're looking for? They don't speak confidently. But when you're convicted of the truth, then you can speak it assertively. This is the truth. This is what I believe. Well, here Paul is convicted about the truth of the resurrection. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Again, the conviction. God will raise us with Jesus. He will do it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Now, why could Paul and his companions speak so confidently of his future resurrection? Well, it's because he understood the power of Christ's saving work. In fact, he wrote about that earlier to the Corinthians in his first letter, in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to his words there. He says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ." So the Apostle Paul is saying in those words, think of the first man, Adam. Adam's sin guaranteed the future death of all those connected to him. Right? And we, we believe that. We know that. People born into this world are connected to Adam by nature. And we expect and we trust that one day, if they live long enough, they will die. We don't doubt that. Well, the hope of the gospel, in one sense, is the same as the work of Adam. Just as the sin of Adam guaranteed a certain, a certain future to all those connected to him, so the work of Christ guarantees a certain future for all those connected and united to him. So that's how the gospel is the same as the work of Adam. But at the same time, the hope of the gospel is exactly the opposite. And it's opposite in this way. As Adam's sin guaranteed the death of all those connected to him, the work of Christ guarantees the resurrection of those united to him. That's why Paul and his fellow uh, preachers of the gospel can speak so confidently as they do here in this passage. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing. 
that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and take us with you into his presence. And this sort of conviction is not just something for the Apostle Paul or his fellow workers. This is a conviction that every believer can have. After all, 1 Corinthians 15 says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, all believers, those who are in Christ by faith. Notice how Paul speaks this confidence and this faith in solidarity with believers who have gone before him. He says we speak along the same spirit of faith as it is written, I believed and so I spoke. Those words are taken from Psalm 116, which we hope to sing from later on. In that psalm, the author speaks of the many afflictions he went through. He also experienced times of intense despair and fear. He says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And yet, as you read through the rest of that psalm, you can see the psalmist still can speak with absolute confidence in the saving help of the Lord. It's the same thing as our text. Paul and his fellow workers went through many hardships, as he describes earlier in chapter 4. They were jars of clay. They were afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And yet he could speak as confidently as a psalmist in Psalm 116, God will save me, and he has saved me. I will one day rise again, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And as Christians, as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can speak with this confidence too. And because Christ's resurrection guarantees our future resurrection, we can look forward to future glory. And this passage describes that glory in in many wonderful ways. There's 4 verse 16, which says this, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Already now, we're being transformed. God is at work in us. And that process of renewal started in this life is actually the beginnings of our glorious future in eternal life. As it says in chapter 3 verse 18, God's is at work in us to transform us into his image from one degree of glory to another. You see, in uh, the eternal life with our glorified bodies, we will be so filled with the Spirit that we will always bear the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love and joy and peace. And isn't that a a, a wonderful existence? Imagine all the time filled with things like joy and peace. Well, that is what is coming. That's part of our glorified state, and it's something that God is working in us even now today as he renews us by the Spirit. 
Then there's 4 verse 17. It says we have an eternal weight of glory coming beyond all comparison. Literally, he says this weight of glory is from extraordinary degree to extraordinary degree. He's saying you can't overstate how how weighty this glory is, how magnificent it is. And any hyperbole you try to use would end up not being hyperbole at all because it would be reality. The glory that is coming really and truly is far beyond all comparison. Then there's 5 verse 1, where he says, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And this is a reference to our resurrected body. It's a building from God, a permanent structure, one that will never deteriorate or crumble away. It's made by God to last forever. As verse 4 puts it, what is mortal, our bodies now, will be swallowed up by life. And so we will put on a body that will never grow tired, weary, get sick, or suffer. And then, in verse, and then in 5, verse 8, he says, we look forward to an eternal home with the Lord. That's something we all want for, a, a wonderful home to always, in which we can always be at rest, in which we can always be at peace and, and feel perfectly safe and at home with ones you love, especially the Lord. And when we are at home with the Lord, then we will be there forever. These are all things that belong to the glory that's coming. That brings us to our second point. So, yes, our passage speaks about how the Christian's future glory is great. We can look forward to that. But that doesn't mean everything right now is perfect. In fact, far from it. Yes, our inner self is being renewed day by day, says Paul, but what about our outer self? Well, as we see here, it's wasting away. This outer self refers to our bodies. Our bodies are breaking down. They're wearing out, decaying, perishing. And this is something we can know all too well from experience. As you get older, sooner or later, you're going to come face to face with this reality. Many of us deal with aches and pains on a daily basis in our joints or in our back. With older age often comes hearing loss and deteriorating eyesight. Some of you will have it that you can only read a book if you hold it at arm's length. Your eyes don't work so well anymore. At one point, we're all going to face sickness or injury. Some of us will go through more serious conditions like heart trouble or cancer. And other problems include things just like physical and mental fatigue, lack of motivation, insomnia, simple loss of muscle strength, you name it. You look at a picture of someone when they're 20 years old and often they're full of health and vigor. Six years later, the same person It's a lot more frail. Simply can't do the things he or she once did and enjoy doing. 
As our text says, our outer self is wasting away. And notice how our text refers to our bodies in their present state as a tent. And this, this description fits for several reasons. The first reason our bodies are described as tents is because of their weakness. Now think of a physical tent for a moment. Think of a camping tent that you uh, may, may own. When you buy a new tent, it starts off all nice. Everything works great. But as you camp out in nature, you know it's not going to stay that way. Sooner or later, things start to fall, fall apart. You might get tears in the fabric here and there. Maybe a tent pole breaks and you try to fix it with duct tape. And you know, that doesn't really work very well, does it? Then one of the zippers gets broken and it can't fully close properly. The worst part about that is you know that at night you'll be hearing the world's worst sound. Mosquitoes buzzing in your ear. After a while, it's not worth keeping that old tent. You just throw it in the trash. It breaks down and wears away. It's not worth keeping. Similarly, the tent of our earthly body is weak, subject to breaking down. This is one reason why we groan now as Christians. Yes, thankfully, God often gives healing and renewal to our bodies. However, the overall trend is going to be downward. And once things really start to go, you long for something else, something better. You long for a body that is not subject to so much weakness, pain, deterioration. So that's one reason why our bodies are referred to as a tent. Another reason our bodies are described as tents is because of their temporary nature. Right? Tents are temporary structures. They aren't meant to be lived in uh, permanently. Think of camping again. The summer-like weather has come, and I'm sure many of you are looking forward to going camping this summer. It can be great. And you know what? Camping is great. Well, for a while, anyways. And sleeping in a tent. That can be exciting, too. At least for a certain period of time. But after a week or two of camping, what happens? You start looking forward to your own home and your own bed. No one wants to sleep in a tent forever. It's the same thing with these perishable bodies. They are a wonderful creation of God. They are, but they aren't meant to be permanent in their present state. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that in eternal life we lose physical bodies and are completely new people, unrecognizable to what we are now. No. Think only of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The Lord Jesus' resurrected body had real physical flesh. It was the same body, but it was glorified, made perfect, immortal. This means our bodies, as we have them now, will be changed, imperishable, immortal, perfect. 
And the difference between our bodies now and how they will be in their glorified state is sort of like the difference between a tent and a building. Indeed, that's the analogy our text uses. 5 verse 1 puts it like this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now with this analogy, it's very likely that the Apostle Paul is referring Uh, referring to the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. The Old Testament tabernacle was a tent. It was movable. It was transient. In itself, the tabernacle was very glorious. And the tabernacle is so often associated with Israel's desert wanderings on the way to the promised land. It looked forward to what was coming in the future. Contrast that now with the Old Testament temple. The temple was a permanent building. It was immovable. It was associated with Israel's inheritance in the promised land, the land where they could enjoy rest. It was richly constructed, far surpassing the tabernacle in glory. That's how it is with our bodies now and how they will be. Right now, we are in the tabernacle of our body. We're awaiting that building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. That's one reason why we might groan now. We long to be clothed with our eternal dwelling. If you lived in a tent permanently now, well, you would start groaning, that's for sure especially if, if you had to live in a tent in a Winnipeg winter, you would call out, someone get me out of this tent. I want a permanent home. I want a lasting house to live in. Somewhere I can always be at peace and be safe and sound. And Likewise, we might groan now. It's because also this life is so often a life of affliction. In verse 17, he speaks of the affliction we experience right now. That's how often life is. And previously in this letter, Paul describes some of the affliction he went through. In, in chapter 1, he describes it. He says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. It's what Paul experienced at times. So utterly burdened beyond his strength. That's part of the groaning of this life. He despaired of life itself. And God's people can go through that heavy affliction in this life. Maybe you are right now. And what effect does that have on us as Christians? It makes us long for heaven. It makes us desire that that great and that lasting glory to come makes us want to be 
away from the body and at home with the Lord. And in that light, even though we groan, we can, as Christians, keep going on in faith. That brings us to our last point. So as we just saw, the present groaning for believers can be overwhelming at times. Paul experienced that, as we heard. And when, you, when you're going through suffering especially, it's easy to focus only on that. But notice the perspective of faith also in this text. We read, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We look to the things that are unseen. We fix our gaze on them, on what is coming. We focus our attention on the eternal things. We keep thinking about them. And as we do that day by day, we are following the words of chapter 5, verse 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. We keep our eyes fixed on what's coming. And that faith is that these things are coming through Jesus Christ. You see, the things described here, the things that are unseen, it's not some kind of blissful, wishful thinking. These things are real and certain and true, and they are coming. And verse 5 affirms this too when it says, The one who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us a spirit as a guarantee. It's not just something we dream up and hope for. God has prepared us for this eternal life. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In time, he brought us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He worked faith in our hearts. And as verse 5 says, he has given us a spirit as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is like a deposit. When you make an expensive purchase, sometimes you pay some money up front, a deposit. The deposit shows your intention to carry through with the rest of the purchase. Well, God has given us a deposit on our eternal inheritance. He's given us a spirit. So he's showing he's going to carry us through to the end. Because these things are true, we can keep going in the Christian life despite the affliction we might face. We see that emphasized in our text. There's 4 verse 16. For this reason, for these things, because of these things, we do not lose heart. There's 5 verse 6. Because of these things, we are always of good courage. And again in 5 verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. And we can always be of good courage because the afflictions we experience cannot take, this, take away this future glory. No matter how low we might go in this life. And not only that, but our text says, the afflictions we suffer now are producing something. Paul, first of all, speaks about the afflictions he endured for the sake of the gospel. Death is at work in us, he said, but life is at work in you, Corinthians. What's he saying? 
Well, he endured crushing hardships for the sake of the gospel. It nearly killed him multiple times. But by bringing the gospel to the Corinthians, they received salvation, and God's kingdom grew. Listen to what he says here. God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. But ultimately, it brought more people into eternal life. And this meant more people with which to rejoice together forever. More people to love and be loved by in eternal life. More people with which to praise God forever. Think it was worth it? Yes, it was. And as we persevere in the Christian faith, despite our sufferings, it cannot help but benefit the church. The comfort we received from the gospel through our affliction allows us to comfort those who are going through any affliction so that our comfort might overflow to them. In this way, we help each other persevere in the church will grow. These afflictions we experience are also producing something else. He says in verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So notice what he says here. It's not just that we suffer now and then there will be glory later. No, these things are connected. It's suffer affliction now, which is preparing glory for us later. Right? The suffering and affliction we go through now, it's not just something we need to get over and done with. It's doing something for us. It's preparing the eternal weight of glory for us beyond all comparison. From one extraordinary degree to extraordinary degree. And so that means... That your unique sufferings in this life are preparing for you your unique experience and enjoyment of glory in eternal life. It's not pointless suffering. It's not. Remember, the one who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Notice the contrast he makes between the trouble and the glory. The Spirit through Paul calls them light, momentary afflictions. What a thing for, for Paul to say. A look at his life. Right? This is not to make light of the afflictions themselves. Paul went through terrible afflictions. But he's saying this. When those afflictions are placed on one side of the scale and the glories they are producing are placed on the other side of the scale, the afflictions we experience in this life will be like comparing dust to lead. It's no contest. And this sure hope not only gives us great courage, but it also changes how we live. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory. So we long to be at home with the Lord. That's where we're going. 
Because we are going to the Lord, we make it our aim to please Him. For we are going to be with Him forever, and He's the one who saved us. So he ends by saying, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one might receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, our faith changes us. Faith produces works. God will raise us up with Jesus. Eternal glory is coming. These sayings will spur us on to love and good deeds. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he, our Lord, is pure. Amen.